Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. We're going to talk today about the death of globalism, which, by the way, Keith, is pretty drastic. Uh, are you sure you're not working with a the headline there? <laughs> where did this? Where, where would this idea come from? I mean, we're going down a global path. How, how exactly. would we get off that and, path? And it's now disintegrating. So this is a long article produced by a guy called Nafiz Ahmed. So he is a writer. He's written in The Guardian and a whole host of places. He's based in, uh, in Britain, runs a very good um, research outfit, and... He's produced a journal article based on a report produced for the European Union on how we can see the future of globalisation. So if you think about globalisation as being the erosion of borders, so there's a political dimension to all of this. So the world order that we created beginning in Europe in 1648 with the creation of separate nation states, that era is coming to an end and we see instead the world coming together, it's becoming more integrated. That's globalisation. The erosion of the significance of national boundaries, the erosion of the significance of national governments. The European Union is a great example of all this. And instead, we're learning to live by relying on people whom we don't know. So if you think of the world before 1750 in Great Britain, you you wouldn't have travelled very far. My guess is that you would have lived and married and died within three miles of where you were born. So this is 1750. So you would have known all the people with whom you traded, a very little of a cash economy. So you would have grown food, which you would have traded for someone to make you a pair of shoes or some clothing, etc. It was a barter economy. In 1750, we get the Industrial Revolution. And so we then see quite suddenly this drastic change on the planet, beginning in 1750, in a very small way, beginning in the north and the midlands of England. And this, of course, when you're doing calculations with climate change, that's where you begin, around, say, 1750. And so we see, therefore, the world becoming knitted together through a process of globalisation through trade. And so we have now learned to live with, in today's version of globalisation, very long supply lines. You've got a an Apple iPhone there, right? So that's designed in the United States, uh, assembled in China from components made throughout Asia. That is a long supply chain because you're sitting here with it in Sydney, Mm. right? You have learned to rely on people that you've never met. Very different from the world of 1750 because back in 1750 or earlier, you would only have been trading with people that you would have met on a daily basis. Whereas now you have become reliant upon long supply chains with people whom you will never meet. They're helping you with your day-to-day living. And so the argument has been that the world is becoming more and more integrated. And so the great value of all of this economic growth is that we see, therefore, the integration of the world. So you're learning to live by relying upon others with long supply chains producing your Apple iPhone and whatever, or growing your food, making your clothes, etc. That's the good story with globalisation. The world is becoming more integrated. This article from Nafis Ahmed, The Disintegration of Global Capitalism Could Unleash World War III, is arguing that, in fact, we are now living through a period of the disintegration of globalisation. So I've given you the good news. 
Let me give you the bad news. Uh-uh. So this is a... <laughs> exactly. So Professor Gerhard Hanapi, uh, so economic advisor to the European Union, has argued that since the crash of 2008, the world has moved away from integrated capitalism to disintegrating capitalism. And he identified a number of what he calls red flags, the growth of military spending, democracies transitioning into increasingly authoritarian police states. So we see the erosion of civil liberties. This, of course, began particularly in 2001. You know, if someone had told me in 2001 that the US would become a police state, I would not have believed it. But their Bill of Rights has been shredded by all of the changes that have taken place. So even the democracies are transitioning into police states, uh, heightening geopolitical tensions between the great powers. We have already looked at the speculation of a war between China and the United States, the Thucydides trap, the resurgence of populism on both the left and the right. So populism means that you're getting angry people involved in politics. On the right, of course, they supportive of Donald Trump and, of course, Brexit with Britain leaving the European Union. On the left, you see also a rise of populism like Venezuela. So you've also got, if you like, the disintegration of a political consensus. You no longer have a middle in politics. Uh, you've got this disintegration. The breakdown and weakening of established global institutions that govern transnational capitalism, such as the problems the European Union is now having, the, the attitude that we've now got towards free trade, that we in Australia, like all other countries, no longer try to work through the World Trade Organization. We negotiate bilateral agreements with other countries. So it's Australia and New Zealand, Australia and China, Australia and the United States, rather than some sort of grand comprehensive program. So we're actually leaving the United Nations alone and not trying to work through the UN. And we've got the relentless widening of global inequalities. In other words, the rich are getting richer and the poor are becoming more numerous. And so we've, in Australia, luckily, we've got a reasonable social welfare net, although, of course, right outside this building, we've got homeless people. You've got people begging in the street, even in Sydney. And remember, Sydney is one of the richest countries in the world. And we've had a booming economy for the last 28 years. If you're not a millionaire now, you never will be. And yet we still have so much poverty immediately around this building, let alone throughout the rest of this country. And imagine what it's like in the United States at the moment. So this guy, Gerard Hanapi, is just warning that the optimistic gloss that a lot of us take who support globalisation are going to get a rude wake-up call because you've got people who... Um, do not accept this uh, as being the way forward. And instead, we're going to have more and more disintegration. I'm sorry to be so pessimistic, but this is the big picture world in which I live and getting people to think about the unthinkable. But Yeah, but I don't know. Okay, it just comes out of left... I mean, it doesn't come out of left field, but it's not exactly the way we're kind of travelling along. No. We've got Donald Trump that's advocating for the... Well, no, he is advocating for the opposite. Yeah, Donald Trump is, is a supporter of disintegrating capitalism. In, by his behaviour. Now, he wouldn't use... We can't let him be right, Keith. <laughs> but in a sense, you know, he is capitalising upon the anger that is felt by poor Americans. Now, whether he's actually helping the poor Americans is another matter, but he is capitalising upon that anger. So he's become a spokesperson for that anger because people are feeling poorer in the United States and the figures support that. The banks have recovered since 2008, but not, a lord, not the ordinary American necessarily. 
And even when, when he boasts about the high rate of employment that people have got, but yeah, but they're not getting a livable wage. They're working hard. They're often working in two or three jobs. So there's a lot of anger, and Trump has been able to manifest that anger, and he's, of course, doing it by saying, well, we're going to go for America first. In other words, disintegrating the global system. And he's only one leader. You've got the same in Europe. You've got uh, European leaders boasting about wanting to follow illiberal democracy. In other words, not following this notion that you get um, amongst Britain, France, Germany, but who want to have a more authoritarian way of doing things. And President Xi, clearly no Democrat. The Chinese model is authoritarian government because they will say, look, the problem with you guys in the West with all this democracy and all this nonsense, you never seem to agree on anything. Whereas we can build a bridge within a matter of weeks. There's a very good talk that Graham Allison, who's the author of this book on the Thucydides trap, Graham Allison, in a TED talk, actually has a picture of a bridge that's outside his office at Harvard, and it's still not built. They've been repairing it for two years. And he says, last week I was in China and they built a bridge virtually on the spot. And he shows his, and he actually, in the TED Talk, shows a video clip of a bridge that goes up over a weekend. Obviously, it's a speeds it up uh, video clip. But he just says, this is what the Chinese can do. Whereas we at Harvard can't even get a bridge sorted out over a couple of years. And so President Xi would say, look, all this nonsense about democracy, it doesn't work. We know how to do these things. You've got to be authoritarian. You've got to give people a sense of direction. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Suda. We're talking today about the death of globalisation, which sounds extremely dramatic. However, we are listening to Keith try and justify this kind of statement. Uh, Let's talk about the countries in the world, of course, that um, would be pro globalisation versus those who would be anti it, Keith. Because China, obviously, China, India, all the growing economies would be very much for globalisation. On their own terms. Yeah. Not necessarily working through international institutions. Yeah. Which is one of the arguments of this author, that uh, the warning is that these are people who may cooperate but may not cooperate. Just looking at some of the ways in which globalisation could disintegrate. One is the risk of great power conflict between the United States and China. And of course, one of the other issues is what's going to happen with the rise of China and India. And so will we have problems in the long term between those two countries? You know, once America gets pushed off the scene by the end of this century, is it a duel, therefore, between India and China? So that's one of the things he looks at. He also looks at uh, small wars and global contagion. In other words, let's assume we can avoid a head-on collision and a World War III head-on, but there is also the risk of an outbreak of conflicts. Now, we, we have just lived through 70 years of peace. Now, if you're in Vietnam or Korea or Congo, you might disagree with that. You can't say you've had 70 years of peace, but in a country like Australia or the United States or Great Britain, you can talk about the long peace, right, which begins after World War II, which ends in 1945. So the argument is that this is, by world standards, an unusual period. You don't normally get the sort of length of peaceful periods. So this fellow is warning 
that you could end up with a, a continuing series of small conflicts. The most obvious one is the whole issue of Islam and whether we're going to be getting religious uh, fanatics amongst the Muslims or amongst some Christians who are going to continue their own localised conflicts. So that's a, a second one. The third one is the whole issue of the global insurgency of the poor. In other words, that you will get poor people who um, are just going to be either motivated by Marxism, unlikely, or Islam, because Islam is a religion of the poor. That's why it grew so rapidly following the time of Muhammad, because it appealed to the young and the poor. And so whether you would get more people being attracted to the cause because they are poor people and they can see their standard of living declining, and so Islam will promise them a better future, as we saw the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda doing, recruiting people for the last decade or so. What is interesting is they are three big trends to keep an eye on. You know, we sit here comfortably in Sydney and we're enjoying life, but we've got to be aware that there are these big looming issues that are not on our horizons because our media, the mainstream media, are so focused on immediate issues. Remember in Australia, of the 20 most popular TV programs, 17 are on sport and three are on cooking. So we have these major changes that are taking place that are simply not on our radar screen. So the author of this um, article, Nafiz Ahmed, says there is also a fourth trend to pay attention to, which is the whole um, environmental crisis. In other words, that you've got issues of water, climate change, obviously, erosion of coastlines. Resources. Resources, bushfires or wildfires in the United States. You've got all of these other issues. This is another fourth possibility that you've got to factor in, um, which also then triggers the mass movement of peoples. One of the arguments about Syria, for example, is that the war that we had break out in 2011 was triggered partly because there had been a failure of the rain in Syria and a lot of farmers had drifted into the city in the hope of trying to make money. So you had a lot of unemployed people who were in the cities who were then ready to be mobilised for a conflict, whereas if they had been farming out in the regions, then they wouldn't have been involved so much in the conflict because they would have been concentrating on earning living for a day. But because they're unemployed and in the city, they were then vulnerable to recruitment by the various factions. Which is a big issue when we look at like anything like that at the moment. Because yeah. if people are disaffected, Absolutely. they're easy targets. So in other words, the, the bottom line for me then in this article is that we have lived through 70 years of globalisation since World War II. And of course, you know, I often boast about how we have one global economy, which China joined 30 years ago, and has been good news for us in Australia. The only countries that are not really part of the global economy now are North Korea and Cuba. No doubt at some point they will join in as well. So you've got one global economy. You've got the integration of countries. People can move freely from one country to another in a way which had been inconceivable 100 years ago. They've got money to move from one country to another. Airfares are coming down in price, etc. That's the optimistic story. What this person is arguing is to say, yes, but also be willing to think about the unthinkable and be willing to realise that we're actually possibly in a period of disintegration, not integration, and that we could have major problems looming on the horizons for us. Global Truths was presented by Dr. Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Live Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.